Uh, our passage today comes from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 17. Uh, if you can choose your translation, uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Um, many of you know I'm a huge John Mayer fan. And uh, for those of you who did not know, uh, this week marked the 20th anniversary of his first major uh, label release, which was an album called Room for Squares. And, um, you know, I've followed John Mayer's career from the very beginning, and I still remember when that album first came out. And uh, a lot of people actually wrote him off as being just another gimmicky pop artist. Um, but over time... You know, we all kind of watched him grow and evolve as a musician. And, and I think most people would agree that he's kind of reached a legendary status among musicians and songwriters. Um, but he wrote a post this week about that first album that I thought was really interesting. And he said this, I wrote these songs when I was between 20 and 22 years old. The album features a song called Your Body is a Wonderland, which in hindsight might make one cover their face with their paws, uh, but there was such a sense of boundless enthusiasm at the time, coupled with a complete lack of knowing what to fear. Once you learn what to fear, uh, once you start crafting criticism in the voices of others, you've already lost a layer of joy in the proceedings. I was sort of like Billy Madison coloring a duck blue because he hadn't seen one. I hadn't heard a song called Your Body is a Wonderland, and that seemed good enough reason to write it. You could say it's become a punchline of sorts, as all novel-sounding songs avail themselves to. But as I look back, only momentarily, I realize that whatever goofy innocence those tunes might trade in is exactly the spirit I'm chasing 20 years later as I continue to look for the big, bold, unsaid things. And, and, and you know, I just thought this was such an eye-opening quote, you know, because I think it really speaks to our journey of faith. You know, sometimes as we grow older, um, as we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, we can actually lose that goofy innocence, that, that sense of childlike wonder we once had. And uh, for those of you who've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we're in a series right now at our church through the book of Mark called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And our hope through this series is to really help us recover that sense of wonder and curiosity around who Jesus is, to kind of wipe the slate clean of all of our preconceived notions that we've inherited over the years. Um, because what, what you'll see over and over again in the book of Mark is that the people who presume to know who Jesus is often have no idea who he really is. 
you know, many of you know that all of our community groups this season, um, they're doing something called inductive Bible study, um, which is an interactive way of studying the Bible that allows readers to make their own observations, to come up with their own interpretations and applications of a specific text. Um, and I can tell you that I, I've done inductive Bible study with so many different groups um, at our church. And across the board, I will tell you, it's always the people who think they already know the answers, um, who come into a text, you know, feeling like they know it, they've read this before, you know, they're going through the motions. It's always these people who end up stunting every discussion. You know, my favorite group to do inductive Bible study with is always new believers because they're not afraid to say controversial things. You know, they're not afraid to color the duck blue and bring their questions and doubts and uncertainty to the text. It's always the seasoned Christians uh, who have the hardest time with the inductive method because they've now learned what to fear. You know, they're always trying to correct everyone. No, that's not what Jesus meant. Um, no, you're not allowed to say that. Um, and yet I think it's really comforting that in the book of Mark itself, it's often the people who think they're closest to God who are often the furthest from his heart. You know, it's the people who think they know who have no idea. And this is what we're going to see in our text today. You know, this is one of Jesus's early run-ins with the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. Um, so these are people who thought they knew God. And, uh, you know, it's really going to, this story is going to set the stage for the conflict that's going to continue to brew between them throughout Mark's gospel. Um, you know, these Pharisees, they just they just seem to follow Jesus around wherever he goes. You know, for for people who hated Jesus so much, they're they're always around. Um, you know, they're like those internet trolls um, who you know. I always I, I don't understand these internet trolls who continue to follow people they supposedly hate and can't stand. And so every time you know a you know a post comes up, they just feel the they feel that it's necessary to make a comment or to say something about it. Um, and this is what we're going to see uh, in Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. Um, up to this point, we've already seen that Jesus is operating on a completely different wavelength from everyone else. Um, just to recap, in Mark 1, Jesus makes this epic announcement that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Um, and then, you know, the first people he goes out to recruit for this grand mission are four ordinary fishermen. Right, And then last week, uh, we looked at Jesus' healing of a leper, his willingness to get close to someone nobody else in that society was willing to cl get close to. Um, and we didn't look at this passage, but the story that comes right after that one is the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. You know, it's the one uh, where the paralytic is lowered through the roof uh, by four of his friends. And uh, all these stories are fan favorites because they show us a picture of a Jesus willing to dignify people who have been overlooked and marginalized by society. I mean, who wouldn't love a Jesus like that? Who wouldn't love a Jesus who shows compassion uh, to people who have no power, to people like the leper and the paralytic who didn't get to choose their lot in life, but kind of got the short end of the stick? You know, we love this Jesus um, who sees the oppressed and moves toward them, right? But all of this kind of begs the question, why then was Jesus so controversial in his day, right? Why was someone as loving and compassionate as he was so hated? You know, like, uh, is there anyone in the world who hates Mother Teresa? I mean, it, like, it wouldn't make sense to hate her, right? I mean, how can you hate someone who does so much good for the poor and the oppressed? And yet people hated 
Jesus. And so we have to investigate that. You know, I think um, we automatically assume that if we lived in Jesus's time, that we would have been his biggest fans, right? That we would have applauded everything he did and agreed with all his choices. And, and um, I would like to suggest that that definitely would not have been the case. And I would argue that most of us would have hated Jesus just as much as the Pharisees did. And let me explain. Uh, in the story we're looking at today, um, we have Jesus again walking by a lake. And this time he approaches a tax collector uh, by the name of Levi and he says, follow me. Now, if you thought Jesus calling four ordinary fishermen to join him on his mission was strange, I mean, this is unthinkable, right? And this is where context matters. Um, you know, when we hear the phrase tax collector, um, you and I typically think IRS. And yes, it's true. Like nobody likes the IRS. Um, if you're listening right now and you work for the IRS, um, I'm so sorry because nobody likes you. <laughs> um, but I mean, we're talking about a completely different level of hatred uh, when we talk about tax collectors in Jesus's day. Um, so to give you some uh, background, uh, at the time, uh, the country was under Roman occupation and uh, the Roman tax system was pretty complex. And the way it worked was that um, land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, uh, but taxes on transported goods were typically contracted out to local tax collectors like Levi, who would be stationed in strategic locations. And the way these local collectors made money was by collecting way more than they were due and then skimming off the top. Okay, so they were known to be shady, um, ruthless. You know, they were known to just make up their own regulations, make false accusa make false accusations. You know, they they were they were just seen as the the worst of humanity. And, and maybe the the worst part about it was that most of these tax collectors were ethnic Jews. Okay, in other words, they weren't just exploiting random people; they were exploiting their own people. You know, they were getting rich while their own people were starving to death. Um, one scholar uh, said the only apt comparison would be like the Jews uh, who served as moles and informants in Nazi Germany. Okay, so these are people who willingly left their own out to dry for personal gain. And so to first century Jews, you have to understand that tax collectors were the scum of society on par with murderers and thieves. Okay, and this is super important to understand because what that means is that in this story, Levi isn't the oppressed. He's the oppressor. He's the abuser. He's the bully. See, are you starting to see why Jesus ruffled feathers? Right? And Jesus doesn't just have a conversation with Levi. That in and of itself would have raised eyebrows. He's at a dinner party with him that night. And guess what? It's not just Levi there. It's a whole room full of Levi's. Okay, when it says Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, um, it's not talking about sinners in a general sense. Okay, back then, the word sinner uh, had a much harsher connotation, right? It wasn't just used to describe people who occasionally violated the law. You were talking about people who actively and willingly opposed the Torah, Okay, people who intentionally chose to stand outside the will of God. Okay, so think about this. The leper and the paralytic, they didn't choose their lot in life, right? And that's why we love those stories. That's why we love that Jesus uh, shows these people compassion. But what about the people who do choose their lot in life? 
What about the people who choose to abuse their power? The people who knowingly and willfully prey on the vulnerable and the weak, those who condone and perpetuate evil. We're talking about the Larry Nassers and the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. Do you believe they deserve compassion? Because these are the people sitting at Jesus' table. Okay, I want you to let that sink in. And if you feel kind of your breathing um, starting to get heavier right now, if you start starting to feel a little uncomfortable, maybe even upset, I hope you can start to see what I mean when I say that Jesus is never who we want him to be. Okay, now you might be thinking, wait, what are you saying, Jason? Are you saying that we should go out and intentionally befriend criminals and abusers? Um, obviously, that's not what I'm saying. Please uh, don't make that the one takeaway of this sermon. Okay, um, you don't need to look very far in Mark's gospel to see how Jesus feels about those who hoard wealth and use their power to exploit the poor. We know how Jesus feels about that, right? But what are you going to do with a text like this? I mean, he's eating with them. You know, and I think it's so intentional that um, there's no mention of a revival or a life change that happens as a result of this meal. There's no, and then after the meal, the tax collectors went out and sold all their possessions and gave it to the poor. It's just a story about Jesus eating with sinners. There's no healing. There's no exorcism. There's no altar call. It's just a meal. You know, I, I, you know, I think a lot of us would like to think Jesus' primary ministry was doing things for people. Right? If you think about it, that's why churches often operate the way they do. Right? We think our job is to do things for people. And so we gauge all of our programs and initiatives by whether or not they produce some kind of measurable result. Because if not, it feels like we didn't do anything. Right? But when you actually read the Gospels, you realize that most of Jesus' ministry was not doing for people. Most of his ministry was being with people. Just being with them sitting with them, breaking bread, having conversations, doing life with no strings attached. People weren't projects for Jesus. They weren't a means to an end. They were the end in and of themselves. You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like relationship. It looks like presence. And I talk to a lot of leaders at our church um, who often share with me that, you know, they feel super inadequate because, you know, they feel like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I can do for these people. Jason, I feel so ill-equipped. I'm not the best communicator or counselor or facilitator. You would be surprised by the things that can happen when you commit yourself to simply being with someone just because. But you see, you can understand now why the Pharisees are so upset, right? Because if we placed ourselves in this story for a moment— Imagine having to sit there and watch Jesus ham it up with your worst enemies just because. Think about how that would make you feel. You know, what you really want is for Jesus to walk into Levi's home and just bring fire down on all those sinners, right? What you really want is for Jesus to execute justice and put these people in their place. What you want is for Jesus to give these people what they really deserve. Because in your mind, they shouldn't get to sit at Jesus' table. They don't deserve it. right? Whether we want to admit it or not, I think many of us carry a version of this mindset everywhere we go. right? We think to ourselves, what makes that couple more deserving of a child? We're the ones who've been praying for years to get pregnant. What makes 
that person more deserving? You know, what makes that person more deserving of his or her success? You know, I've been at this way longer than he or she has. I've been grinding so much longer. You know, what do I have? What, what does that person have that I don't, right? What makes that person worthy of a boyfriend or girlfriend? What makes that person marriage material? I literally have everything she has, right? This is the heart behind the Pharisee's question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? To which Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is where Jesus is so masterful and, he, and he's playing mind tricks again. Because who is he really referring to when he says those who are sick? Is he talking about the tax collectors or is he talking about the Pharisees? You don't know. Um, Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor uh, and you know author out in New York City, uh, he has a book called The Prodigal God. And in it, um, he unpacks the famous story of the prodigal son. Uh, those of you who've grown up in the church, um, even those of you who haven't grown up in the church probably know this story. Um, and he makes the argument that this story is just as much about the older brother as it is about the younger brother. You know, um, and, and he writes this. He says, Jesus does not divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, is a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. In friends, whether we know it or not, I think we can say that we all have certain standards we use to measure someone's worthiness. And we use those standards to determine whether or not a person is deserving of God's grace and ours. And, and what Jesus is beginning to show us here is that we don't get to choose who he shows grace to because that's the very definition of grace, giving someone something they don't deserve. It wouldn't really be grace if there were prerequisites for Jesus's love and acceptance. You know, I think sometimes we want to add things to biblical stories that aren't there. You know, I think when we like read this, we would like to think that, you know, Jesus invites these people to follow him. They all repent of their sins. They all turn over a new leaf, and then they get to sit at the table with Jesus. But there's nothing in the story that suggests that. Jesus loves them exactly as they are. You know, um, I think some of us grew up, you know, grew up in legalistic church environments. And, you know, I, I know just in talking to so many people in our church, you know, they were just so oppressive, right? Because there were all these rules and things you had to do in order to gain God's favor. And, and I'm sure many of us remember the first time hearing a message about God's grace because it was like, it, it was this aha moment. It was the first time somebody told us, God loves you exactly as you are. And we started saying, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It's all about grace. You know, grace is awesome. Thank you, God, for grace. But I want to pose a question 
Do you really believe that? Do you really believe grace is good? You know, I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, it was a Monday morning, um, and I walked into one of my seminary classes, um, and it was this was during midterms. And uh, I remember we had a huge paper due that Friday, okay? And um, my professor walks in at the beginning of class, and, you know, uh, the first thing she says is, look, um, you know, raise your hand if you haven't started your paper and you're super stressed out because it was this was one of those papers that you really could not procrastinate because um, if you did you would be screwed you know it just required so much research uh, so much work on the back end that you know if you hadn't started by this point you were pretty much screwed and the professor said raise your hand just be honest no judgment here um, and we'll pray for you okay it's the one great thing about seminary um, they'll still give you F's, but they'll at least pray for you um, as you get the F. Um, and and so, you know, there was a part of me because uh, actually I hadn't started my paper either. You know, um, that's like right when I had kind of stepped into my role as a lead pastor. And so I was super busy. And, you know, but I was like, ah, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to raise my hand. So I just kept my hand down and about seven hands went up. Right. And so we just took some time at the beginning of class. She said, why don't you just uh, lay hands on a person with their hand up around you, pray for them. And uh, yeah, and then that was it. And we kind of just started class. And it was interesting because that class was actually about a passage like the one we're looking at right now. It was, I don't remember which passage it was exactly, but it was one of Jesus's kind of showdowns with the Pharisees. And our professor posed the question, why do you think the Pharisees were always so upset with Jesus, right? And, and this is a seminary class, so, you know, we all had good kind of theologically sound seminary student answers. Um, and then, you know, time ran out, and then uh, she's about to leave class. So, it's, you know, it's the end of class, and she says, oh, real quickly, um, before you guys leave, one more thing. Can the seven of you who raised your hand at the beginning of class raise your hand again? And, and, you know, those hands went up and she said, um, don't bother writing your paper. Uh, you all get 100%. And it was, like a, it was like you could hear a pin drop in the room. Like nobody was smiling. We were all kind of looking around confused, like, uh, is she serious? Um, and then she said, you know, if some of you lied and you actually already wrote your paper but raised your hand, uh, that's fine too. Um, once you just submit that one, you don't have to submit your final paper. You get 100%. And she just walked out. And you could feel the tension in the room. Like even the seven people, um, they weren't smiling. They were zipping up their backpacks super slowly because they felt bad. They knew it wasn't fair. Right? And I remember um, leaving that class, I remember walking to my car and uh, I got into the driver's seat and no joke, I just started banging my head on the steering wheel. Um, I was like, you idiot. Why didn't you raise your hand? Right? Because I, I had a funeral that night. Um, I had two other papers due that Friday. I had a wedding on Saturday. I had a sermon to preach Sunday. And I was not happy for my friends at all. I was pissed. And, and in that moment, you know, I, I, like I'm driving away and I'm just fuming, right? Like, I'm like, like what, what was that? 
And, and, and suddenly in that moment, I realized what my professor was doing. She wanted us to ask ourselves whether or not we really believed grace was good. She wanted to show us a glimpse of how scandalous grace really was. She wanted us to see we were no different from the Pharisees. That when you see grace up close and personal like that, it's offensive and it's shocking and it's counterintuitive. You know, why do you think we call it scandalous? Have you ever wondered that? You know, we use that phrase, the scandal of grace, right? Why call something scandalous that's so good? It's because it's offensive when you see it. Because it rewards people who we feel shouldn't be rewarded. Right? And what we all took away from that experience was that whether we wanted to admit it or not, there was still something in all of us that didn't love grace. We despised it. You know, if you and I were to examine our own hearts today, uh, my guess is that most of us uh, would look at the things we have in life and, and I think we would genuinely believe we earned it. You know, we might acknowledge we've had some lucky breaks here and there, but at the end of the day, I think we're all convinced that it's our hard work and our diligence and our giftedness that got us to where we are. That we're sitting at someone's table today because we deserve to be there, right? And because we feel like, you know, we are where we are, not because of grace, but because of our merit, because we feel like that, even though we talk about grace all the time, if we're really honest, we despise it. And it shows because we make the people in our lives earn their place at our table, right? We do it to our spouses. We do it to our kids, our parents, and our friends. But you see, that's not grace. Grace is love without condition. It's love that requires nothing in return. It's love that by definition is undeserved. You know, some of you are frustrated today because you're like, how do I get through to this one person in my life? How do I make this person change? How do I fix this person do what Jesus did. Start by loving them as they are. But they keep annoying me as they are. But did you hear what they just said to me? As they are. But they haven't changed in years. As they are. That is grace. And if you're here today and there's someone in your life you're struggling to love, if you find that the natural tendency of your heart is to criticize, judge, or condemn Perhaps it's because you personally feel criticized, judged, or condemned. Could it be that maybe it's because you feel like you've had to constantly prove yourself and earn your seat at the table? And I just want to say today that the gospel says you don't. The gospel says you don't have to prove yourself. The gospel says because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have nothing left to prove. You already have a seat at the table. You know, this meal with Levi is so characteristic of who Jesus is. You know, because Jesus doesn't need anything from Levi. He doesn't need his money. He doesn't need his friendship. In fact, it says at the beginning of this passage that Jesus already has a large crowd following him. Jesus shares this meal with Levi because he loves him. Period. And this is a constant theme throughout Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, on the night Jesus is betrayed, you know where he is? He's having a meal. 
And you know who he's having a meal with? People he knows will abandon him and leave him out to dry. You know who else is at that table? Judas himself. I want you to think about that. You have one meal left on earth, and you choose to feed the one guy who's going to stab you in the back. And yet this is the scandal of grace. And friends, you and I will never be able to appreciate the power of this story and see grace as something that is good unless we truly learn to see ourselves as the ones who didn't get what we deserved. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserved God's favor. It doesn't matter how good or kind you think you are. Put that up against the perfection of God, and it's not enough. What we deserved is death. We aren't the good guys in the story. We're the bad guys. You know, G.K. Chesterton, who's a Catholic theologian, He was asked by a newspaper reporter to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world? And his answer was one line. He said, I am. I am. You know, that's the attitude of someone who has grasped the message of Jesus. Friends, only when we recognize that the problem isn't out there with those sinners with my husband, with my sister, with my mom, with my super belligerent friend on social media that I can't stand, only when we recognize that the problem isn't out there, but the problem is in here. That we're the ones who are sick and in need of surgery, that it's our sins that put Christ on the cross. Only then can we begin to appreciate the scandalous grace of God and in turn embody that same grace to those around us. So this morning, may we all humble ourselves and may we receive the gift of God's grace again, freely offered to us in Jesus. May we come to him with all of our self-righteousness and brokenness and failure, knowing that he meets us where we are and he welcomes us with open arms. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for your scandalous grace shown to us on the cross. Lord, I know all of us can probably think of one person in our life right now who we're really struggling to love. Would you help us to see him or her with your eyes? Help us to love them the way you love us, without condition, exactly as we are. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we've judged and condemned others for the ways we've often made others earn their seat at our table. God, may we be reminded of the immeasurable grace we've been shown, that we might become embodiments of that same grace in our homes, in our workplaces, and in all of our relationships. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.